0: The unprecedented lockdown in Wuhan, China, lifted at the stroke of midnight on April 8th. The city of Wuhan, where the COVID-19 pandemic began, has reopened to the world. In this is a hope, not just for China, but for the entire world battling the coronavirus outbreak. With its widespread testing, severe restrictions on movement, social distancing and the use of technology, China managed to flatten the curve. Significantly slow the spread of the coronavirus. This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm your host, Sohila Kram. In this episode, we look at how China brought the coronavirus outbreak under control in just 100 days and what lessons can be learned from it. For 11 weeks, Wuhan was a ghost town, but now people are being allowed out of their homes and businesses are slowly reopening. According to local media, within hours of the lockdown ending, roughly 65,000 people had left the city by trains and planes. Many of them had come to visit relatives during the Lunar New Year holiday in late January and were stranded when the coronavirus lockdown was announced. These are hundreds of medical workers at an airport in Wuhan, singing and sobbing at the same time, saying farewell to their colleagues as they prepare to fly home. Thousands of healthcare workers were flown in to help with the outbreak, and now they can finally return home. Wuhan's residents are now also permitted to leave without special authorization, as long as a mandatory smartphone application and a mix of data tracking shows they are healthy and have not been in recent contact with anyone confirmed to have the virus. But not everything in the city is healed. It suffered immense pain and thousands of deaths. As it opens up, the world is watching this recovery. The end of lockdown in Wuhan came after only three new coronavirus cases were reported in the city in the previous three weeks, and a day after China reported no new deaths for the first time since they began reporting. These are signs of progress, but suspicions linger that the Communist Party government in China is intentionally underreporting the real number of deaths and infections. US President Donald Trump recently questioned China's death toll and infection rates. Their numbers
1: seem to be a little bit on the light side, and I'm being nice when I say that, relative to what we witnessed and what was reported. According to the New
0: York Times, China, for weeks, flouted the World Health Organization recommendation that countries include asymptomatic patients in their official counts. But as public pressure mounted, Chinese officials began partially reporting the asymptomatic patients from April 1st. China has denied these suggestions. The country has a history of accusations for under-reporting disease outbreaks. During the SARS outbreak of 2002, the Chinese government was called out for its attempts to cover up the outbreak, which eventually infected around 8,000 people and killed nearly 800. And yet, while the optimism is edged with caution, Wuhan is open again. Despite the city's new freedoms, there are still a number of prevention measures in place. wearing masks, temperature checks and limiting access to residential communities remains in place. And people leaving the city will face numerous hurdles, such as 14-day quarantines and tests at their destinations. We spoke to Dr. Shi Chen, Assistant Professor of Public Health at Yale School of Medicine and a China expert, to hear
1: his perspective about how China controlled the virus early on. Starting from December the 8th, there were some cases first uh, identified. as people having having a fever. But those are the number, like over time. So it's not like uh, um, all coming out at the same time. So it's really hard for all human societies to identify uh, situations like that because we need to judge whether this is a threat to the human society or it is a very local issue. So that took a while for them uh, the local health authorities to identify the risk until, I, I believe, until January the 11th. So before that, they tried to be pre- uh, precautious. They tr- tried to close the seafood market because they believed that, that the seafood market was linked to these um, infections. We know that uh, by January the 11th, that was a massive movement of, uh, uh, of people working in the East Coast to West uh, Inland. And that was the, we call the chuan period, which is um, the spring festival uh, travel season. Usually like uh, around the 8 billion people uh, times they travel across the country. So that was um, uh, really uh, bad, bad timing because uh, that may accelerate the infection of uh, uh, virus. Since then, the transmission was ongoing throughout China, not only restricted to Wuhan. Since this is a very unknown threat, so a lot of events were still ongoing. For example, there were like uh, 10,000 people's banquet right before the Spring Festival, and there was uh, some official-sponsored uh, tourism uh, events uh, in Wuhan, which also attracted more than uh, a few uh, thousands. So that was a large uh, social gathering, but things changed dramatically after two, um, January the 20th, when um, China's major scholar, Zhong Lanshan, was uh, confirming throughout the media, there was a human to human transmission. I think that was the uh, the key date when they realized this is a large scale transmission ongoing. After confirmation, it only took like uh, two and three days for China to decide to have a lockdown at the epicenter, uh, Wuhan. So they locked down around 13 cities, which on average had uh, about 6 million population. So overall, it's like um, twice the population size of Canada uh, being locked down uh, within a few days. As the number of
0: positive cases started surging, China wasted no time. It quickly built makeshift hospitals in Wuhan to house the patients. By February 28, Wuhan had created 16 temporary hospitals, adding 13,000 beds with 12,000 people treated so far. Overall, the number of Wuhan hospital beds rose from 5,000 to 23,000. And that, according to Dr. Shi,
1: was a very critical step. In China, in Wuhan alone, they built 13 makeshift hospitals. each can host about 2,000, 3,000 people. So they can put the lighter, so people with lighter symptoms in that facility and the healthcare workers can take care of them. If they are like getting worse, then they are uh, going to be uh, transported to some major hospitals. And China also built two hospitals to treat those uh, severely ill patients. So one is called Lei the other is those two hospitals were built within 10 days. But I know it's very different, different culture, very difficult to make this arrangement in the U.S. because I, as far as I know, my American friends, they have concern about their uh, free choice, freedom, and their uh, privacy. So they do not uh, really like the idea of uh, being put in a, a makeshift hospital because that uh, didn't happen anytime in their throughout their uh, lifetime. So it's a a new experience they have to adopt. Chinese disease control officials
0: said in January that the virus likely came from wildlife to humans at a Wuhan market that sold wild animals for food. Experts believe it was bats before an intermediary animal passed it on to humans. As the virus spreads rapidly around the globe, nearly half of humanity has been forced into some form of lockdown. Wuhan's unprecedented lockdown has become a model for countries around the world trying to stop the spread of the COVID-19.
2: Well, the early reaction from the Chinese citizens, you know, who are quite compliant and, you know, listen to, to what their government tell them, they they were very compliant. This is Raymond
0: Ferguson, an Irish national who lives in China's Guangzhou city.
2: The first time that, that the news started to come out around the 20th of January, Um you know that was over the period of, of the spring festival time here which is is the big big holiday for for chinese people um, many many migrant workers at that time would return back to their home their home villages and hometowns to spend that 10 14 day holiday with with their family um and normally it's a time for for getting together and eating to get dinner obviously with your family and and socializing with your family but None of that happened this year, um, which was quite bizarre because, as I say, it, it's the, the main bike holiday and, and possibly the only holiday that, that many Chinese get, you know, within the space of a year. My first initial uh, reaction was, This will all blow over, this, you know, it's nothing to get really serious about. I was looking at the numbers and things like that, that was obviously. Maybe being a little bit dismissive, but, you know, that's that's the way I am anyway. And, you know, I, I kind of take everything in my stride. But then as time started to go on and, you know, as more measures, more stringent measures began to be taken and, you know, hearing then just on the news and, and from the Chinese locals themselves, that they were quite, you know, alarmed about this, obviously, and especially whenever the government then started to you know, close all the public areas and, and announcing people should be staying at home and not going out on necessarily. And if you do have to go out, wear a mask. Um, so, you know, as time, as time has gone on, and now obviously whenever I look at the rest of the world, you know, it's something that everybody should be taking seriously.
0: And without a COVID-19 vaccine, more and more countries are going for stringent curfew and lockdowns. Still, the World Health Organization doesn't think it is enough.
2: These society-wide measures are difficult, they are not easy, uh, and they are hurting people. Uh, But the alternative is even worse. And countries, if they're going to be able to move away from this approach of, of having to lock down and shut down, If we're going to move away from that approach as a means of suppressing the virus, we have got to put in place the public health surveillance, the isolation, the quarantine, the case finding, the detection. We've got to be able to show that we can go after the virus because lockdowns alone will not work. But unfortunately, in some situations right now, they're the only measure that governments can actually take to slow down this virus.
0: That was Mike Ryan from the World Health Organization's Emergencies Programme. But China's restrictions go beyond the lockdown. Testing remains an important factor in curbing the spread. On April 6, the Chinese government said that those travelers who try to hide their travel history or health condition can face a fine of over $4,000 or even criminal proceedings. It said such people would be placed on a customs blacklist of travelers who would be subject to tighter checks in future. Back in the southern city of Guangzhou, where Raymond lives, he describes some of these strict measures that the government is taking, sometimes having people's temperature taken at least five to ten times a day.
2: You had to get your temperature taken, and even yet, that's still the case with all the supermarkets and, and any restaurants that are open. Um, keep the mask on, obviously, while, whenever you're not eating or, or drinking, and you have to kind of keep a distance Well, the restaurant has to put these these measures in place that you have to keep a distance of about 1 to 2 meters away from the next person. So those are just the day-to-day things. Um, I live in a gated community here. I have to get my temperature taken before I'm allowed into the community. I have to get my temperature taken again before I'm allowed into the, the actual apartment building where I, where I live. So day-to-day, just on a normal day out for me, I am getting my temperature taken at least five to ten times, depending on how many shops I go into. One of the important tools that China is
0: using in its fight against the virus is technology. There have been numerous reports of how China is using a health code app to curb the spread of the virus. This mobile phone app has been a success, if intrusive experiment so far. It helps the government distinguish the sick from the healthy. The app tells its users if they have been near a person who has been confirmed or suspected of having the virus. We asked Raymond if he has the app on his phone.
2: Well, there was one app, uh, it's called Kang. Uh, it's S-U-I-K-A-N-G. And everyone, whether a foreigner or uh, a local, if, if they moved from one province to another, then they had to the update. Basically, it would have asked where you had come from, um, what your current health status is? Do you feel okay, etc.?
1: And as I say, I I lived
2: in a gated community, and they would have like a, a QR code there that that you would have to scan to in order to download that information and fill it out right on the spot. So once you would fill it out once, uh, then if you were going into somewhere that required uh, a sway can, then you know you would just show show the app that you've already downloaded and the information that, that you posted at that time would be scanned and then you would have free passage then. But that was definitely uh, one thing that, that everyone here had to, had to download and had to use, basically. But how exactly does this app
0: work? Here's what the Human Rights Watch website says. People first fill in their information, including their ID number, where they live, whether they have been the people carrying the virus, and their symptoms. The app then churns out one of the three colours. Green means they can go anywhere. Yellow and red means 7 and 14 day quarantine respectively. The app also surreptitiously collects and shares with the police people's location data. Outside China, the situation is now worse. As of April 9th, global coronavirus cases have exceeded 1.5 million. Italy, hit hard by the virus, has announced they may soon start to slowly lift restrictions. The United States has more than 430,000 confirmed cases, the highest number in the world. France has officially registered more than 10,000 deaths from coronavirus infections, making it the fourth country to cross that threshold after Italy, Spain and the United States. Wuhan is no longer the center of the crisis. Now, it's the United States. As of April 8th, New York State, with 149,316 confirmed cases, has had more people test positive than any other country in the world. Ajlan Al-Zaki is a UAE doctor at the Stanford University Hospital in California. He says that despite the early warning signs from China, the U.S. missed a chance to stop the spread of the virus.
1: I think we definitely were were given warning signs from what we saw take place in China, what we saw take place in Italy. I mean, they have had tremendous casualties from, from infections or people being infected with coronavirus. I think one of the biggest limitations in, in the US was really when we learned about these infections in China and in Europe, developing testing capabilities uh, and really expanding the hospital capacity to handle increase patient loads, especially in the intensive care unit.
0: As the positive cases in the United States surge daily, are there any takeaways from China that the U.S. can implement? Here is Dr. Xi again.
1: I think uh, it's very important to do the contact tracing and identifying people with uh, symptomatic cases. Now the testing kits is not in a shortage. Now they, they should continue to aggressively testing people because we know for this disease, more than 60% of people may be asymptomatic, but there are already some clinical cases showing that asymptomatic cases can be transmitting or spreading in the world. So now the uh, the issue in America is still uh, testing capacity in many places because we see that in many places, uh, the, the positive rates are still very high. Like the testing, identification, isolation should still be ongoing. And at the same time, I think US and China and other countries should work together to uh, accelerate or, or to shorten the time period of the antiviral drug research and development and also trying to find an even longer-term uh, vaccine because th- there's a large chance that this virus may go back in the, in the fall season or next, early next year. These are
0: unprecedented times. The COVID-19 pandemic has tested the world. Resolves of governments are being tested, as is the resilience of the people.
2: I would just hope that, you know, people could listen and, and take a little bit of advice and my personal anecdotes from here and just, you know, do what do what is asked of them socially and, you know, be safe and keep your distance for a while and, you know, just try and help one another out through this this uh, difficult time that, that everyone is experiencing. And I think, and I hope, hopefully, you know, if everybody do that, then we'll, we'll come out at the other end of this a lot quicker and hopefully a lot better people at the end of it uh, personally to one another, whether no matter what religion you are or or what language you speak or where in the world you live, I I just hope that, you know, humanity-wise, we can learn a lesson from this and and start focusing on the real things that that matter in life.
0: Thanks this week to Dr. Shi Chen from Yale and Raymond Ferguson. Thanks also to Dr. Achlan Al-Zaki from Stanford. I've been your host, Suhi Akram, and you have been listening to Beyond the Headlines. We were produced this week remotely by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to drop us a review and hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcasting app. Stay safe.